And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for tuning in today. It's been another busy week in Minnesota politics. In the second half of the program, we'll talk about the legislature running up against its deadline and whether there will be a special session. But first, the campaign for Congress in southern Minnesota. There was a hard-fought primary this week to narrow the field of candidates who will run in an August special election in the 1st Congressional District. On the Republican side, the primary was won by former State Representative Brad Finstad. And Brad Finstad joins me now. Congratulations and thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, you uh, you won that primary Tuesday night. It was a real landslide. I checked this morning, 427 votes over your nearest opponent, Jeremy Munson. Uh, why do you think it was so close and why do you think Republican voters finally tipped it to you? Well, I will just say, uh, you know, first of all, I'm just so humbled and honored to uh, to have those uh, 400 uh, that that 400 vote cushion in uh, what you call a landslide. <laughs> uh, I, uh, you know, I think that really what it shows is Southern Minnesota conservatives, just common sense conservatives, are awake, are paying attention to what's going on, and are just really unhappy with the direction of of what we're seeing right now on a lot of different fronts. And so we had a very, uh, you know, uh, strong turnout. I think both myself and uh, Jeremy uh, re- each individually received more votes than than uh, our Democrat opponent. So I, it just shows that the the base is energized and paying attention. And uh, I'm just honored to uh, you know to to have that support here Tuesday. And my wife and I have uh, you know been born and raised in South Central Minnesota. We come from families that have farmed and owned agribusiness in southern Minnesota for generations, and uh, we've devoted our life and uh, proudly raising our seven children here in southern Minnesota. And so I'm looking at my hands right now, and I have, uh, I have the, the dirt of southern Minnesota under my fingernails, and it's in our DNA. So I, I feel like that connection that we have uh, with our area and just, uh, you know, God willing, we've made more friends than enemies as we've uh, tried to live a good life, and I think that's maybe where we're, why we got to where we're at. Mm-hmm. And uh, we should just note, because it's a little complicated, this primary was for the special election in August that will fill the remainder of the late Jim Hagedorn's term. Then there's another election, the regular election in November, to fill the next two-year term. I assume that you're running in November no matter what happens in August, right? I'm just running. I'm sprinting. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, we, uh, yeah. I mean, that uh, just the process and the time frame, it doesn't really allow for much much other uh, other options than that. So, you know, we'll uh, Tuesday we'll officially file the paperwork we need to do to make sure we're on all the ballots between here and November. And, yeah, so it's, uh, it's a sprint campaign through the finish line ultimately in November, but obviously August 9th is that next, uh, next hurdle or finish line to get through. Are the voters clued into this? Are they paying attention? Do they realize that uh, there is an election in August? I would say voters on our side are. I mean, look at the primary results. You know, May 24th primary, people were, you know, thinking about planting corn, mowing their lawn, getting their kids out of school, maybe going on vacation this weekend, but they still showed up. And so for me, that says people are paying attention and they understand what's going on here. Congressman Hagedorn, you know, served... Served very honorably, uh, Southern Minnesota. He was a Southern Minnesota boy, and uh, people, you know, are aware of his death, uh, his passing, and the need to, you know, fill that seat out. So, uh, we'll, and we we have some time here to make sure people understand what the August ninth uh, election is about. And you sound uh, fairly confident. I'm assuming you don't think it'll be quite as close in August as as the primary was. 
Oh, no, I'm, uh, I, I've played a lot of sports in my day. Uh, we always run like we're five points behind. So I'm, uh, what I'm confident in, in is, uh, is my neighbors and my friends and uh, southern Minnesota voters and, and where we are right now as a country, um, you know, the family pocketbook issues that, that folks are struggling with. You know, this is real. It's not political talking points. I see it as a farmer and a small business owner. Uh, I see it in our communities. And uh, so people are awake. So, you know, I, I feel confident that they will respond. They'll show up. They'll be involved. And they'll, they'll take this serious, that this is an opportunity for us to, you know, have a, a Southern Minnesota common sense conservative uh, having a seat at the table. And what do you want to do if you have that seat at the table? What do you want to accomplish in Congress? Well, I want to make sure that, uh, you know, first of all, that I use what God gave me in the right proportion, and that's two ears and one mouth. So I want to make sure that I'm listening and available and understanding, you know, for sure what, uh, what the needs are of Southern Minnesota, but also then being able to bring those to D.C. Uh, and, uh, you know, specifically around agriculture, there will be a new farm bill uh, in the works. And to be able to, you know, walk into uh, Congress, uh, hit the ground running on uh, the farm bill development and making sure that we're representing, uh, represented. Uh, obviously, Minnesota is such a strong agriculture state. We're in top five in corn and soybeans and pork and turkey. And so it's important for us that uh, we have an advocate at the table uh, on that issue. But moreover, small business issues, uh, you know, the, the kind of the bread and butter family pocketbook issues are things that we got to kind of dig into and, and make sure that we're uh, changing, changing the trajectory on some of these issues. You know, 4, 450 gas, uh, grocery store prices that are going through the roof, and uh, in some cases, empty grocery uh, shelves, uh, shortage of baby formula. Some of these things just don't make sense to us here in southern Minnesota. So it's, it's you know, really just stepping forward and being strong about those things and making sure that Congress is addressing it. What uh, should Congress be doing about inflation? How do you how do you solve that problem? Well, f- first of all, we got to stop the crazy spending. You know, get get the rain back on spending. And you look at uh, what what Congress and what we've just come through as a country in regards to COVID and some of the uh, spending that was around COVID. Um, we have to make sure we know what's going out the door and where it's going and how it's being spent and making sure that it's effective and you know not just printing money to print money and put our children in debt. So control, get a control on spending, but also then, you know, look at some of that energy production. You know, how can we, how can we really jumpstart the economy in the U.S.? And, and uh, you know, we can't just say our answer is to rely on the world's oil to, uh, and, and be victim to the price that they tell us it's going to be. And, and then we, uh, you know, pay 450 gas and wonder why our families are, are going broke. So we can be strong on bringing back energy production to this country. Talking to Brad Finstead, he's the Republican candidate for Congress in the 1st District special election coming up in August. Um, You know, there was that terrible shooting in in Texas this week. Uh, Some people are calling for stricter laws around guns. Is there any new law that you would support to try to stop this sort of thing from happening again? Yeah, I mean, there, there, there is no doubt that this is a tragedy, and just uh, you know, my heart and prayers go out to all of the families and really all of those around the country that are struggling right now. Um, as a father of seven, obviously, this is an issue that you know you you look at and you just uh, you, you just can't help but uh, pray. And uh, but we we can do better. I mean, I, I really question where we are as a country, where we have devalued each other and the humanity of who we are to the point where. You know, bad guys are doing bad things, and we, we have to address that. Uh, 
you know, the, the political rhetoric about the guns takes all the oxygen out of the room to actually have a robust conversation about how we can take a look at mental health issues, school safety issues, you know, common sense things like metal detectors, single point entry, security guards, uh, how, we, how we address the whole mental health issue and, and what's, what, what's happening to these folks where they don't look at their friends, neighbors, and classmates as humans anymore. And that, to me, is part of, uh, you know, that compassionate father in me. We, we just have to have that conversation. And sometimes, you know, I think it's the fact that we don't see it. You know, if, you're, if your child breaks his arm, you see the broken arm, you take him to the doctor and you get that arm fixed. But when, when kids are struggling uh, with, with mental health issues and, and other, you know, depression, other things that are just pu- putting them to the point of desperation and evil, we have to step in and do better. And uh, to me, that's where the discussion needs to lie. Um, you you talked about uh, federal spending uh, during the COVID pandemic. Uh, apart from that, uh, where would you cut federal spending if spending is too high? What what would you want to cut back on? Yeah, I would say we should look everywhere. You know, um, and I would just say, and I and I, I don't say this to be a, you know a smarty pants, but I would just say, when is the last time we as a country have looked through our spending from top to bottom? You know, a complete look at government from an audit perspective. Uh, you know, the go-along-to-get-along policies have, have put us in trillions of dollars of debt. And, and I look at the things through the lens, again, of a father of seven children. What are we doing to our next generation? What are we leaving them? What are we leaving this country, uh, uh, you know, and, and this great country that our forefathers have put so much time, money, and effort into? And so for me, it's just a matter of, you know, how do we look at everything? We, we, we can't just... Uh, pick and choose and, and uh, you know, kind of sand off the edges. It's a kind of top-to-bottom approach of how we look at things and how we spend. So, you know, going down the road with continuing resolutions and just blowing through debt ceiling can't be the answer. Uh, it has to be a, a full, full look of every agency and every program. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of time left, and I, I don't want to be a smart aleck either, but I, this is a serious question. Why would anybody want to be in Congress right now? <laughs> Seems like a, a lot of yelling at each other, a lot of bickering, not much getting done. What's the attraction of the job for you? Yeah, so actually uh, the attraction is to change that right there. You know, again, as a, as a father of seven, and, uh, you know, I met my wife in second grade on the school bus. We're, we are southern Minnesota through and through, and I've seen really tough challenges in our communities get solved, problems get fixed. And it's because we treat each other as humans. We have civility. I've done a lot of great things in our community with folks that I do not agree with politically. But we don't focus on what tears each other apart. We focus on what are we committed to to make our backyard better. And that's what we need in Congress. And, you know, we can simply sit back and be cynical and say, oh, you know, the politicians are just a bunch of scream and holler and fighting fools. Or we can say, no, we as a country can do better. We must do better. We owe it to our kids to do better. And that means, you know, sometimes we have to step out of our comfort zone and we comfort zone and, and heck, we run for Congress. Well, Brad Finstead, thanks for coming on. I hope you'll come back as the campaign goes on. I would love to, and I appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. Brad Finstead is the Republican candidate for Congress in Minnesota's 1st District, the special election coming up on August 9th. (music) 
And let's keep our focus on southern Minnesota's 1st Congressional District. The primary winner on the DFL side was Jeff Ettinger. He's the former CEO of Hormel Foods, making his first run for public office. Uh, Jeff Ettinger joins me now. Congratulations and thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I appreciate being on the show. Uh, You had an easier night Tuesday than your Republican opponent. Uh, Last time I looked, it was about 64% of the DFL vote. Uh, Why do you think you won, and why do you think you won so big? Oh, I was just very gratified to see the support throughout the entire southern Minnesota district. We traveled everywhere from Laverne to La Crescent and all the towns in between and ended up, I think, winning every county. Um, We did particularly well, and and my hometown here of Austin was just really proud of the local support. Uh, I know received support from moderate Republicans and independents as well as Democrats in the town, and we look to replicate that recipe going forward here in August. And as we mentioned, uh, the August election is to finish out the the remaining months of Jim Hagedorn's term. There, then there's a, another election in November to fill the next two-year term. Uh, your plan, I assume, is to run in November no matter what happens in August. Yeah, absolutely. I filed actually yesterday for the August. There's, there's technically a primary election for the two-year seat that is on the same day as the final special election. Very confusing for voters, but I absolutely will be on the ballot in August and in November. Do you think the voters get it? Are they tuned into this uh, this odd schedule? Well, I mean, I think the, the hardest part of the schedule, arguably, was this election we just had on Tuesday, because an election in May is not the norm for Minnesota at all. Uh, August is the normal primary time. I think it will be a little confusing, though, for voters to have two different things on the ballot. And literally, in, in some cases in our district, the district even changes so that you're right. in, in some areas you can vote in the special election, but you're not going to be able to vote in the August primary. So that could well be confusing. I'll be interested to see what the state does to make the ballots clear for folks. Well, let me ask you, uh, Congressman Hagedorn, who who unfortunately died in February, he was a Republican. He won two terms. Is it an uphill battle for a Democrat to win now in southern Minnesota? You know, I've lived in the district now for over 30 years, and in my time, the, the, the seat has swung back and forth. Uh, Tim Penny, Gil Gutnick, so Tim was a Democrat, Gil was a Republican, Tim Walls for 12 years, not that long ago, and yes, now Congressman Hagedorn was the most recent representative. Uh, both of Congressman Hagedorn's races were quite close, and, and so I definitely think the seat is at play. I also hear, when I talk to voters, how frustrated they were with Congressman Hagedorn's approach. I mean, he really treated it, unlike his predecessors, he treated it as a winner-take-all. He really represented only the far-right wing of, of voters in our community, and people got frustrated with that. So what do you want to do if you get to Congress? Well, for starters, I want to listen and be respectful to everyone. I, I come at it with a non-politician's, common-sense, balanced approach. Uh, I think southern Minnesota has some unique needs in the in areas of supporting education. So, for example, I've talked about we need to get our federal government to live up to its special, special education funding commitment. They, When the requirements were passed, they had agreed to spend 40 cents on the dollar on that. And when I go around the district, it's... Seven cents, twelve cents, thirteen cents in Austin alone. That's over almost a six million dollar general budget shortfall for our public school system. So that's one area I would look. Another area would be in the area of job skills. Uh, here in Austin, I'm the chair of the Hormel Foundation, and we've created a, a unique program whereby we provide opportunity for tech education at Riverland Community College to all our graduates here in Austin. And it's uh, three years in; it's off to a great start. I think a program like that would benefit the district overall.
Hmm. Okay. Uh, I, I have to ask you about what's in the news, and that is that uh, shooting at, in a school in Texas this week. A um, lot of people calling for stricter laws on guns. Is there any new law that you would support to try to stop this from happening again? You know, I really think we need to do more in the area of background checks. Um, it's That's a, a mainstream, common-sense position. Uh, you know, I did have the benefit of hearing Brad's comments earlier, and he mentioned bad guys are doing bad things. Well, then we need to get the guns out of the hands of the bad guys. And we, we, we've we identified by law who some of them are, yet we have uh, allow loopholes and allow them to get guns in some cases. I, I don't understand that. I think there's also conversations happening in Washington right now about potentially supporting some of the red flag laws in certain states, and I think that's something at least worth exploring. Okay. Uh, Your background is in business. You've dealt a lot with agriculture. Uh, What issues are you hearing from business owners in the district, and what about farmers? What what are people struggling with right now? You know, this district is a a key bellwether for the farm community. The The member of this district has been on the House Ag Committee for over 30 years, and I would look forward to sitting on that. You know, from my vantage point at Hormel, we dealt with larger farms and smaller farms, and they both have an important place, I think, in the community. I think uh, sometimes our, our, our political folks talk about, oh, you need to get big or get out. That was sort of Congressman Hagedorn's message to farmers in the area, and I don't ascribe to that message. I think our smaller family farms can thrive. I, I saw that in terms of the consumer marketplace for Hormel. There are a lot of consumers now looking for niche items, such as organic or natural or antibiotic-free, and we should be supporting those kind of areas as well. Uh, It just seems like everybody's complaining about high gas prices and inflation. Uh, What, if anything, can Congress do about inflation and, and high gas prices? You know, to me, inflation, I understand it's a major concern, and it has multiple causes. It started with unprecedented worldwide disruptions from covid shutting things down and people not being able to work and then ports backing up and so forth. Um, Now we have the war in Ukraine, and so that has accelerated inflation and fuel and food prices. So what can we do about it? I think we need to focus our spending and work on reducing our deficit. We should be focusing our spending uh, in terms of our priorities and, and also spending just on those in need. I think Senator Amy Klobuchar's antitrust enforcement legislation would help. And I think we need to make more in the United States so we're less vulnerable to some of these supply chain challenges. Are you, would you be an automatic vote for President Biden's agenda? What do you think he's doing right and what do you think he's doing wrong? You know, no, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be an automatic vote for anything. I think, honestly, that's one of the problems we had in Congress. Um, you know, if you look at the recent Supreme Court nominee, the confirmation hearing, we've gotten to the point for some reason where a Supreme Court justice's credentials are based on politics and not on their legal acumen and skill. When Ruth Bader Ginsburg was confirmed, the vote was 96 to 3. When Justice Roberts was confirmed, the vote was like 80 to 20. And nowadays, it's sort of a rare event if the member of the party who did not nominate the candidate would vote for the candidate. I think there's too much of that in Washington right now. I think we need to assess each thing individually. I think when it comes to social issues, uh, women's rights, voting rights, and so forth, I will be a solidly vote with the Democrats. But on some of the spending things, I would want to really assess what's being proposed. Hmm. Uh, And you have said that the events of uh, January 6th, 2021, were a big factor in your decision to run. Uh, Explain that. How so? 
I just, to me, I just couldn't believe we were watching our, our country that day when we see rioting happen at our nation's capital, people who sort of say they're in favor of law and order attacking the Capitol Police, and then maybe even worse that night, okay, we've had challenges to the election, it went through 60 court decisions, it went to the Supreme Court twice, it's time to do just the basic process of certifying the election, and our own local Congressman Hagedorn couldn't bring himself to do that, and so to me that was a really a disturbing thing. I thought it was embarrassing for Southern Minnesota. And so, yes, that was an element of, of motivation for me to say, hey, look, I mean, we just need to move forward here. The, the other area, though, and, and Brad mentioned this as well, and I agree with him on this, we just we do have to get past the yelling and the hostility. We're not setting a good example at all. There are ways to reach across the aisles. There are ways to work in our community uh, for on a common basis for things in need. Um, do you think democracy is in trouble? Well, I mean, I, there are candidates in state races that they were having their primaries as well. Their espoused position is to go in there basically and block the next election. And so, yeah, I do. I think it, I, I think it's a significant concern. Whoever wins this race in November will be sitting there in January of 2025 uh, with the possibility of certifying the next election. And, and so, yeah, I, I think that's something that voters need to take seriously. And how do you sell that message to folks who voted for Jim Hagedorn or who were fans or maybe still are fans of former President Trump? You know, I, what I intend to do is I intend to get out into the entire district, and there are parts of the district that clearly, when you look at the statistics, have become more red parts of the district in terms of voting patterns. And I'm just going to go out and talk to folks and let them see that I'm not a crazy person. I'm a moderate, sensible person who has significant leadership experience in both business and in the community, and that I have things to offer for the district. I also do believe that, when you, okay, if we're looking at Washington as in need of change, that somebody with my non-politicians, business, and community experience background is much more likely to be able to provide that change than somebody who's been more of a career politician and a lobbyist. Well, let me uh, close with the question I asked of uh, Brad Finstad. Why would anybody want to be in Congress right now with all the the bickering and finger pointing and, uh, you know, yelling across the aisle, nothing much getting done? What's the attraction of the job? You, you hope you can make a difference. I did have the chance to talk with Congressman Dean Phillips from the cities before I made the decision to run, and he talked to me about a group that he's part of called the Problem Solvers Caucus. It's 28 Republicans and 28 Democrats that meet on a regular basis and try to look at things for the best of the overall country and not just the sheer partisan politics. So that's the kind of approach I'd like to have in Washington, and I think that can be done. And and you think you can do it? You think uh, a Democrat can win a, a lot of headwinds against you this year? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll follow the, the lesson of the Tims, Tim Penny and Tim Walls, who both won six times in this district as Democrats and served the district honorably. Uh, I, you know, I look at things on a long-term basis. I think ultimately politics is, is local, and I think the candidate, the, the folks voting are going to pick who they think is going to be the best representative for Southern Minnesota, kind of regardless of what the national picture is. Well, Jeff Ettinger, thanks so much for coming on. I hope you'll come back as the campaign goes on. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on today. That's Jeff Ettinger. He's the DFL candidate for Congress in Minnesota's 1st District in the August 9th special election. (music) 
This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. This hour, we're talking about Minnesota politics. The big story early this week was at the state capitol, where time ran out on the legislative session on Sunday night before lawmakers could agree on details of that plan to cut taxes by $4 billion and increase spending by another $4 billion. Democrats in the House and Governor Tim Walz said they should keep working and finish up in a special session. Republican legislative leaders didn't quite slam the door on that idea, but some definitely do not want a special session. And one of those Republicans is the one running for governor this year, Dr. Scott Jensen, who won the party's endorsement a couple weeks ago. And Scott Jensen joins me now. Thanks for coming on again. Mike, it's always fun to have a conversation with you. Now, you said the other day there shouldn't be a special session and that voters should decide in November who they want to have the final say on the budget surplus. What's your thinking on that? Mike, let's be frank. I mean, they had five months to get very little done, and they didn't get it done. So then when the clock runs out, they say, gee whiz, we got the ball on the one-yard line. We better regroup. I've never seen a football game where they have the ball on the one-yard line, and just because that's where the ball resides, we add five minutes to the clock. And then we've got some Democratic legislators saying that what we really need is a full-time year-round legislature. This is why Minnesotans and people across our country are angry. They're sick and tired of being lied to. This isn't truisms. This is just false rhetoric. You didn't get it done. You didn't even try to get it done until the last seven to 10 days when you finally put some deadlines out there. People should be angry than all get out at this kind of attitude. Isn't a $4 billion tax cut in the hand one that permanently cuts tax rates and eliminates the state taxes on Social Security. Isn't it better to have that in your hand, to lock it in when you can, than to to risk not getting it? Absolutely. But they wouldn't allow that to stand alone. It came with a 3 to $4 billion spending bill. Let's be clear, Mike. When you say that, you almost make it sound like there was a standalone $4 billion tax cut available for the Republican Senate to pass. That's not true. It came as a package deal, which would add 3 to $4 billion of structural expense to our present budget, raising it from $52 billion to $55 billion, which would make it literally some 12 to 15% increase from the last biennium fund budget. That's absolutely irresponsible. We have spent more and more and more, and it's got to stop, and Minnesotans are saying that. This is an overpayment, and people are saying, give it back to the people who paid it, and if you spend 3 to $4 billion, you're not giving it back. Hmm. Some of the spending was for public safety, and uh, I know that's going to be a big issue in this campaign. Uh, Republicans have been saying that crime is out of control, but, uh, I mean... We didn't get that spending, so crime is out of control. We have to do something about it. Can it wait till next year? The portion that was being allocated towards public safety was not for police. It was for nonprofit organizations and things like that. I think what we're seeing is we see the Democrats wanting to play Santa Claus. So they say, okay, we'll give you $4 billion of tax cuts if you give us $4 billion to spread around. I I don't think we're hitting at the heart of the matter. If we want to deal with public safety, we got to have more cops on the street. We need to respect the work that they do, the state patrol does, the National Guard's ability to do work and help us out. We need to recognize that incarceration matters, that mandatory minimum sentences matter, that we should really look into some of these liberal prosecuting attorneys and judges that will plea bargain an eight-year sentence down to a few months. That's what we're going to deal with when we have to tackle public safety. But doing 
nonprofit organizations and saying that's going to contribute significantly to getting our public safety back. Minneapolis is, is becoming a ghost town. We've got to have more cops on the street. We've got to clean Minneapolis up or we're going to be in trouble for a long time. Uh, you know, another uh, of those spending priorities, and this was among Republicans in the Senate, was uh, more money for nursing homes because they have a real staffing crunch. Um, can we wait another year for that? Mike, I think you're right there. That's a critical issue. And I think that we really are abandoning uh, our frail and elderly and vulnerable among us. Why wouldn't the legislature allow just a a standalone bill? I would think every Democrat and Republican would have supported that. Get some money. I know Senator Abler worked his tail off trying to make that happen. But again, this is what drives Minnesotans crazy. And it drives me crazy that they won't allow a standalone bill to go through that would provide, if you will, some support for long-term care, whether you're talking assisted living, memory care, or nursing homes. I mean, I've been medical director of multiple nursing homes, and it is absolutely a crisis space that we're in right now. That should have gone through as a standalone bill, and it should have been voted on last month, not in the last two days of the session. Hmm. Um, Would you support a bigger tax cut next year, more than $4 billion, if you're governor? Yes. How big? I'd give it all back. What I'd like to do is we might want to do something at the front end, but I don't think we should do it all. I think it should be put in the formula tax wise of reducing, if you will, the taxes that people are paying. If you pay it in, you should get it back. But honestly, Mike, I'd like to see Minnesota have a robust conversation about not just getting rid of double taxing Social Security, but why don't we reimagine what Minnesota would look like if we did not have a personal income tax? 20% of the states in our our country already have that. What if we became that bright shining star of the North again, where we were the economic hub of the Midwest? What kind of an economy could we get if instead of people and businesses leaving Minnesota, they came to Minnesota? I mean, that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited about Matt Burke being my running mate, because this is a person who can champion industry, business, and, and grow these businesses, we need to challenge our businesses and our corporations to not just look to other people to supply what they need in terms of ingredients or fabrication capabilities. We need to encourage our corporations to look upstream and downstream and see if they can't create new companies, new plants in Minnesota. We, we have always had the one resource that other states wish they could have, and that is we have a tremendous people. We have a strong work ethic. We have smart people that are committed to education. Minnesota's always been the beacon. We should reimagine what would we look like without an income tax and where we get business coming to Minnesota instead of running away from Minnesota. Last time I looked, I think the uh, income tax uh, generates more than $10 billion a year, maybe $12 billion a year plus for the state of Minnesota If we didn't have an income tax, how would you make up for that money? That's a good question. We certainly have five or six different tax vehicles that we could tap into. But if we were able to get rid of the personal income tax and we raised our sales tax by half a percentage point, we start to now whittle down on that difference. And then if we could control our spending and reduce spending by 5 to 10% on a zero-sum basis across the line, now we're getting close. And once we do that, Mike, I think there's going to be people that are very, very savvy in terms of 
How can we make this work? And we'd get experts from other states and say, how did you do it? But if we don't, if we're not willing to have that hard conversation, we'll never get there. That's for sure. Minnesota used to be a state where big ideas came from Minnesota. Now it's, we think small. We don't go to the core of the problem. We nibble at the edges. Part of it is, if you will, the lackluster performance between our our legislature, when you look at the Democratic House and Governor Walls or, or Governor Dayton, we really haven't been, if you will, bold. And we need to be bold. The last governor that really put in strong educational, innovative ideas was a Democratic governor named Rudy Perpich. And that's how we got open enrollment and post-secondary options. We need to think big. And I think I think Minnesotans are asking for that. And I think we'll see that this election cycle. They're, they're saying, no, we've had enough of the same old, same old. If that's all you've got, we don't want you back. And if you think that not getting the work done in the first five months, it'd be fixed if we went 12 months, I think they'd say, absolutely not. And when these legislators say that, Mike, why don't they also volunteer to say, we won't take per diem? I mean, this this is driving Minnesotans crazy because it's so irresponsible. Well, let me ask you about uh, school spending, because uh, there was a proposal floating around to, I think it was about a billion dollars that would, that would uh, be added for public schools on top of 2% each year added to the per pupil formula in the budget last year. Uh, do you support more money for public schools or less money? Less money. I think it's a black hole. We're just dumping money and we're not getting results. Our achievement gaps are increasing. They're not going down. I was in the Senate and we passed uh, millions and millions of dollars uh, to allow schools to do more to, if you will, focus on mental health, which I think a big part of the reason our schools aren't performing is because we have a true mental health crisis. I think that we need to be doing more with right now. If I send a patient, Mike, I get a 17-year-old patient that may be suicidal, uh, maybe is developing a bipolar manifestations. I can't get him or her in to see a psychiatrist for three months. If I have someone who's acutely suicidal and I don't dare let them go back home and I try to get them into a facility, I'll be making phone calls for the next two hours and I may end up shipping that patient 250 miles away to a place that's got a bed. We've got emergency rooms that are literally creating pods where they can keep three, four, five people for weeks at a time in their emergency room because we don't dare let them go out because they're not mentally stable, but there's no place to put them. We've got a mental health crisis like we've never had before. Our kids, I mean, I don't know where the whole thing comes from. Does it come from our our addiction to social media? Does it come to the fact from the fact that kids are spending six, seven hours a day of FaceTime? Is it coming from the fact that kids don't know how to go outside and play a game without having a phone in front of their face? I don't know where it's coming from. But if we don't start dealing with this mental health crisis and soon in a big way, instead of just nibbling on the edges and talking about, well, we'll, we'll increase the amount that we're paying our psychologists by 5%, that's not solving the problem. The psychologist but, but isn't that should gonna, have their fees isn't, increased. Isn't that going to cost money? And didn't you just say you wanted to cut spending? We will cut spending, but there certainly will be areas where spending will have to be increased. You're not going to be able to cut every area 5 to 10%. What you do is you say, okay, the budget's got to go down 5 to 10%. And in a zero-sum game, it may well be that one department can maybe take a 9% cut, while the other one maybe needs a 2% increase. Hmm. We're going to have to relook at every line item of a budget. That's the only responsible way to get a handle on our spending habits. Uh, let me, uh, we're almost out of time here, let me ask you uh, a question. Uh, the chair of the Republican State Party apologized for an anti-Semitic image that appeared on a video 
that Kim Crockett, the endorsed candidate for Secretary of State, ran at at the state convention. Have you asked her to apologize for that? And do you intend to? I've not seen the video, so I I wouldn't really know what I'd be asking for. Well, David Hand said it was uh, it was anti-Semitic trope. Okay, well then David Hand took care of it. It sounds like. Well, Kim Crockett hasn't apologized though. You you wouldn't. Kim Crockett is Kim Crockett. Scott Jensen is Scott Jensen. Have you reached out, Mike, to Kim Crockett and asked her to apologize? Uh, we've asked to, to talk to her, and she hasn't responded. Okay. Yeah. No, I don't know anything about it, but uh, I know okay. that our campaign, we're going to try to do everything we can to be sensitive. And I know making a video, you know, involves a, a lot of shots, a lot of work, and, and I know that things can happen, but um, I'm not going to speak to something I don't know anything about. Okay, fair enough. Dr. Scott Jensen, Republican-endorsed candidate for governor, thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Yep. This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. We're talking about what happened earlier this week when time ran out on the Minnesota legislature and lawmakers failed to pass that deal that would have cut taxes by $4 billion and spent another $4 billion. Joining me now is DFL House Speaker Melissa Hortman. Melissa, uh, Madam Speaker, thanks so much for coming on and happy birthday. Thank you very much. So what happened over the weekend? Why couldn't the legislature finish on time? Well, we got very close in a number of areas. So out of the 14 budget bills, nine are done, five are not done. But the five that aren't done are some of the big powerhouse bills, education, health and human services, public safety and transportation. And we were very close in each of those areas. For example, on education, we had um, gotten to an agreement except for The governor would like to spend uh, some money on feeding hungry children, and the Senate had not yet agreed to accept that. Uh, That was pretty close. Public safety, I think we were very, very close, but it's a big bill, a lot of details to go over. We had some good compromise uh, between the House and the Senate on investing in both crime prevention as well as fighting crime. Why not pass the parts of the deal that were done? Some of the uh, the higher ed bill, uh, economic development, environment, uh, and the tax bill. Why not pass those as long as they were agreed to? Well, we would have been perfectly happy to pass all the budget bills that were done. But as the House, it's our uh, prerogative to send the tax bill last. And we needed to make sure that um, we were getting the benefit of the bargain because You know, when you look at the divided state legislature, what Minnesotans are telling us is that about half of them are Democrats and about half of them are Republicans. And they find it equally as important to invest in education and health and human services, our nursing homes, um, care for the disabled, as they want uh, reform in the area of taxes and tax cuts when we have a surplus. So it was an agreement to do $4 billion in tax cuts, $4 billion in investments in areas like education and health and human services, and then $4 billion to leave on the bottom line just in case we do see a recession in the coming weeks. Um, and, you know, we're, it's entirely within our power to finish the work and come back and have a one-day special session and pass all of these bills. What are the prospects for that happening right now? It it doesn't seem like Republicans in charge of the Senate are feeling a lot of pressure to come back. Well, I would say the jury's out on that. I think that the Senate needs to hear from Minnesotans who um, believe that we should pass that tax bill. I think they need to hear um, from folks who believe we need to invest in education. 
uh, those who are looking for investments in um, homelessness prevention and um, nursing homes and helping those with disabilities should weigh in with their their uh, GOP senators. I don't think that they've ruled it out. You know, I, I've listened very carefully to everything that Senate Majority Leader Jeremy Miller has said, and I don't think he's ruled it out. I think um, he's a little bit more skeptical that we can reach final agreement on all these bills than I am. And, you know, I, I will just tell you after 18 years in, in the Minnesota House, um, at the end, it always gets a little crunched. And 17 out of the last 20 years, we have had a special session to finish the work. And this year, uh, there's no reason to, to just say at the end of session, oh, I quit, you know, I'm done. Uh, the people of Minnesota hired us to do a job. That job is to go to the Capitol and uh, get laws passed. Uh, without regard to whether we want to be on the campaign trail or not. So I, I'm optimistic that Senator Miller and his team uh, will decide to come back. The governor and I am committed. Our, the DFL members of the Minnesota House are ready to come back and finish the work. I know the DFLers in the Senate are ready to finish the work. And the governor is ready to call a special session as soon as we have agreements. Without that deadline pressure, why are you confident that you can get the deals done, the remaining deals done? Well, we've seen it time and time again. You know, my very first year in the legislature was 2005. Tim Pawlenty was the governor. We had a Republican speaker. We had a Democratic uh, Senate majority leader. So sort of the reverse of what we have right now. And in the very last week of the session, you might remember, um, Tim Pawlenty proposed the uh, health impact fee on cigarettes because we couldn't we couldn't increase a tax so there in the last week of session, suddenly there appeared this thing called the health impact fee. And I think what it is, is that people don't uh, come up with their uh, last final best offer until the very end. And then quite often, there's just not enough time to turn that idea and that discussion into legislation. The governor seemed to hint this week that if there is a special session, that $4 billion in tax cuts, $4 billion in spending, $4 billion in reserve might have to get smaller somewhere. Do you agree with that? Well, the uh, House DFLers and the governor were certainly willing to um, use some of that money on the bottom line for a pensions bill. Uh, we had indicated to the Republicans in the Senate that we thought that um, you know the, they had brought a pension proposal forward that was worth uh, looking at and seeing if we could get done. And the Senate GOP was not willing to take a look at um, going into below the bottom line and, and into that money that we were setting aside to, to work on pensions. That's one area that we could dip into. But if there's, uh, you know, a, a few million here or there, really, you know, small proportions I, that solve the entire deal, my hope would be that the Senate GOP would be flexible enough to take a look at that. But, but would you have to spend a little less to get the Republicans back to the table? Well, that's not the deal. So we have an agreement that we all signed. Uh, we it's got it's dated. It has our signatures on it. Uh, Senator Miller, the governor, and I made commitments not only to each other but to the people of Minnesota. And we it is within all three of our power to fulfill this commitment that we made. Um, when you look across the state of Minnesota right now, you see school districts that are absolutely desperate for more resources. Uh, the St. Paul School District, for example, the superintendent let me know 
that they have a budget shortfall that would equate to 200 FTEs being laid off if we don't come back and pass that education bill that we have pretty much ready to go. And there's nothing unique about uh, St. Paul School District. If you talk to school districts all across the state, what they're looking at is budget shortfalls and they're looking at decreasing services to children and laying off staff. That doesn't make any sense in a state that has a surplus sitting there ready to go. So, you know, there, to me, there is absolutely no reason to not come back and finish. What other consequences would there be if, if there's not a special session? Well, in the area of transportation, it's probably the most significant uh, negative impact. The um, U.S. Congress has rarely done kind of amazing things, but recently they passed this bipartisan infrastructure uh, bill. And it makes available uh, billions of dollars in transportation infrastructure spending for the state of Minnesota. But in exchange, we have to put up a match. Uh, So we have agreed at the leadership level to spend uh, $290 million in the first biennium and $390 million in the second biennium to match those federal dollars. So we can make sure that Minnesota, when we're competing with all the other states, that we pull down the maximum amount we can to bring to Minnesota to fix our roads and fix our bridges and invest in transit. So it would be uh, our chance to compete with other states for these funds would be significantly at risk if we don't pass uh, the the federal infrastructure match in the area of transportation. You know, I have to ask you, everybody is thinking about that terrible shooting in Texas this week. Uh, And of course, there was a shooting in Buffalo 10 days ago. Uh, would Democrats try to put any new gun laws on the agenda if there's a special session? Well, I'll tell you, you get the legislature that you vote for. And in 2018, in that election, uh, voters were really motivated by the shooting in Parkland um, in Florida. And they sent us a gun sense majority in the Minnesota House of Representatives. That is, we had enough members of the Minnesota House of Representatives, all of them Democrats, to pass a red flag bill and universal background checks. In the 2020 election, voters were not animated by the issue of gun violence prevention, and they did not send uh, a DFL House majority that's able to pass those bills at this stage. So, um, you know, we're about, we're a couple of votes short on the DFL side, and we have absolutely no assistance from the Republican side. There is not a single Republican member of the House or the Senate who is willing to vote for gun violence prevention without Democrats and Republicans being committed to do that in a state with a divided legislature, it it is not likely. But what Minnesotans should be thinking about as they go and vote in 2022 is if this is important to them, then they need to send people to St. Paul who are willing to vote for reasonable gun violence prevention measures. So, so it wouldn't be on the table. Well, the, the dog is weighing in now. So it wouldn't be on the table for a special session, though, is what you're saying. I don't think that those measures would pass, given the makeup of the legislature we have right now. Mm-hmm. And if that makes Minnesotans unhappy, then they need to make this a central issue that they ask candidates about in the next election. Well, speaking of candidates in the next election, what's your latest assessment of November? Can the DFL hold the House majority? Absolutely. There are two things going on in American politics right now. One of them is the midterm phenomenon, but the other one is a geographic realignment. And we have seen suburban voters have gone to the DFL and rural voters have gone uh, to the Republican side of the aisle. 
There just happen to be a whole lot more suburban and city seats right now than there are uh, rural seats. So we have 77 of the newly drawn legislative districts where when you overlay the data, Joe Biden won. And so I feel confident that there's 77 seats that are in play for the DFL to win and that we will win 68 of those 77. Last poll I saw, it was a national poll, Joe Biden at about 39% approval. You know, I, I have almost come to completely disregard polls because they have been so wrong. When you look in 2016, we were told uh, highly unlikely Donald Trump was going to win. And uh, every year since then, the polling has been very inaccurate. I don't know anybody who answers the phone and talks to pollsters anymore. When I look at the job performance that Joe Biden is doing, I see uh, a man who's doing an excellent job with the presidency and who's sane in comparison to the last person who occupied that office. So I think you can really set aside the polls to some extent. And what it comes down to is the work that candidates are willing to do. If they're willing to go to people's doors and talk to them about what's important, they can win their vote regardless of what's going on in partisan politics or what the polls tell us. House Speaker Melissa Hortman, thanks so much for coming on today. Have a great weekend. Thank you very much. You too. That'll just about do it for our Friday program. Our producer is Jessica Bari. We had help today from Maya Beckstrom. Our technical director is Alex Simpson. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. We'll see you again here next week. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. If you want to catch the show live, tune in each Friday at noon. I'll be talking about what's happening at the legislature, the 2022 elections, and other things.